Volume One, Chapter Three of A Charming Fellow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charming Fellow by Francis Eleanor Trollope. Volume One, Chapter Three. Mrs. Errington had lodged in Mr. Maxfield's house ever since she first came to Whitford. Jonathan Maxfield, commonly called Old Max, kept a general shop in that town. The shop was underneath Mrs. Errington's sitting-room, and the great bow-window, of which mention has been made, jutted out beyond the shop-front and overhung the street. The house was old, and larger than it appeared from the street, running back some distance. There was a private entrance, a point much insisted upon by Mr. Maxfield's sister-in-law and housekeeper in letting the lodgings to Mrs. Errington, and a long passage divided the shop entirely from the dwelling-rooms on the ground floor. Old Max was reported to be somewhat of a miser, which report he rather encouraged than the reverse, finding that it had its conveniences, and to have amassed a large sum of money for one in his position in life. "'Old Max,' Whitford people would say, "'why, old Max could buy up half the town. Old Max might retire to-morrow. Old Max has no need ever to stand behind a counter again.' Old Max, however, continued to stand behind his counter day after day, as he had done for the last thirty or forty years, and would serve a child with a pennyworth of gingerbread, or a rich man's cook with stores of bacon and flour, in an impartially crabbed manner. He was a grey man, grey from head to foot, he had grey hair closely cropped, twinkling grey eyes, and a grey stubble on his shaven chin. He usually wore a suit of coarse grey clothes, with black calico sleeves tied on at the elbow. But even these had an iron-grey hue, from being more or less dusted with flour, as indeed were all his garments, and even his face. When Mrs. Errington first came to live in Whitford, Jonathan Maxfield was a widower for the second time. He had two sons by his first wife, and by his second one daughter, whose birth cost her mother's life. The sister of his first wife had kept house for him ever since his second widowhood. This woman, Betty Grimshaw by name, had been servant in a great family, and at her master's death had received a legacy which, together with her own savings, had sufficed to purchase a small annuity. She had been able to lay by the greater part of her annuity since she had lived in Whitford, and announced her intention of bequeathing her savings to her nephew James, Maxfield's second son. The elder son had married a farmer's daughter with some money, and turned farmer himself within a few miles of Whitford. Thus the family living at home on the autumn night, on which our story opens, consisted of Jonathan Maxfield, Betty Grimshaw his sister-in-law, his son James, and his daughter Rhoda. The sound of the street door closing violently behind Mr. Diamond startled this family partly assembled in the parlour, together with Mr. David Powell, Methodist preacher. They were all seated at a table, on which lay hymn-books and a large Bible. Old Maxfield sat nearest to the fire, in his grey suit, just as he appeared in his shop, except that the black calico sleeves had been removed from his coat. He had a harsh face, a harsh voice, and a harsh manner. So much could be observed by any who exchanged ten words with him. Next to him, on his left hand, sat his son James, a tall, sickly-looking young man of six-and-twenty. He had a stoop in the shoulders, a pale face with high cheekbones, eyes deeply set, light eyebrows which grew in thick irregular tufts, and hair of a reddish flaxen color. There was a certain family likeness between him and his aunt, Mrs. Grimshaw, as she was called in Whitford, despite her spinsterhood. She, too, was tall, bony, and hard-featured, with a face which looked as if it had been painted and varnished and reminded one in its colour and texture of those hollow wooden pears full of tiny playthings which used to be and probably still are sold at country fairs and in toy-shops of a humble kind the preacher sat next to betty grimshaw he seemed to belong to a different order of beings from the three persons already described a striking face this 
dark and full of fire he had sharply cut handsome features and eyes that seemed to blaze with inward light when he spoke earnestly his raven black hair was worn long and fell straight on to his collar but although this made his aspect strange it could not render it either vulgar or ludicrous the black locks set off his pale dark face as in a frame of ebony he was young and seemed vigorous though rather with nervous energy than muscular strength the last person in this group was rhoda maxfield little rhoda as mrs errington had called her but the epithet had been used to express rather her social insignificance than her physical proportions rhoda was in fact rather tall she was about nineteen years old but scarcely looked her age she had a broad and beautiful brow on which the rich chestnut hair was smoothly parted a sensitive mouth not over small and bright hazel eyes which looked out on the world with an open gaze that was at once timid and confiding her skin was of remarkable delicacy with a faint flush on the cheeks which came and went frequently and yet rhoda maxfield was not much admired among her own compeers there was something in her face which did not please the taste of the vulgar and although if you had asked whitford persons is not rhoda maxfield wonderfully pretty most of those so addressed would have answered yes rhoda is a pretty girl yet the assent would probably have been cold and uncertain rhoda at nineteen years old had never been known to have a sweetheart and this fact militated against the popular appreciation of her beauty for a very cursory observation of the world will suffice to show that on the score of good looks as on most other subjects public opinion is apt to find nothing successful but success what a wind there must be to make the door bang like that exclaimed betty grimshaw when the loud sound above recorded reached her ears who went out asked james i suppose it would be that mr diamond the schoolmaster replied his aunt they both spoke in a subdued voice and cast further glances at mr maxfield as though fearful of being reprehended for interrupting the evening devotions but as they spoke he closed his hymn-book and drew his chair away from the table towards the fireside upon this signal betty grimshaw rose and bustled out of the room declaring that she must see about getting the supper for that that little sarah could never be trusted to see to the roast potatoes alone there was a suspicious alacrity in betty's departure suggestive that she experienced some sense of relief at the breaking up of the devotions james soon sauntered out of the room after his aunt mr powell rose good-night said he holding out his hand to the old man nay won't you stay and eat with us brother powell the supper will be ready directly mr powell shook his head you know i never eat supper he said smiling well well perhaps you're in the right replied old max very readily and i am not clear continued the preacher but that it would be better for you to leave off the habit me oh no i need it for my health's sake but would it not suit your health better to take your supper early say at six o'clock or so so that you should not go to bed with a full stomach no it wouldn't answered the old man crabbedly david powell stood meditating with his head at his chin i am not clear about it he murmured but maxfield either did not hear or chose to ignore the words father may i go upstairs to mrs errington asked rhoda softly i don't want any supper the old man grunted out an inarticulate sound and seemed to hesitate go upstairs to mrs errington he said answering his daughter but looking sideways at the preacher let's see you promised didn't you yes you gave me leave and i promised before before we knew that mr powell would come to-night rhoda was gifted with a sweet voice by nature and she spoke with a purer accent and expressed herself with greater propriety than the other members of her family mrs errington had amused herself with teaching the motherless girl who had been a lonely shy little child when their acquaintance first began and rhoda was a quick and apt scholar 
well a promise i can't have you break your word don't you stay late mind not one minute after ten o'clock do you mind rhoda rhoda with a bright smile of pleasure on her face promised to obey and left the room with a step which it cost her an effort to make as staid as she knew would be approved by her father and mr powell when she got outside the door they heard her run along the passage as light and swift as a greyhound maxfield turned to mr powell with a little constrained apologetic air and began expatiating on mrs errington's fondness for rhoda and how kind she had always been to the girl and how he thought it a duty almost to let the good widowed lady have as much of rhoda's company as she could give her without neglecting duties betty grimshaw is a worthy woman he observed dryly but no companion for my rhoda rhoda features her mother and has her mother's nature very much mr powell stood still in the same meditative attitude with his hand to his chin this mrs addington is unconverted he said without raising his eyes oh rhoda won't take much harm from that much harm the dark lustrous eyes were upraised now and fixed searchingly on the old man well it won't do her any harm the latter answered testily i know rhoda and i have her welfare at heart as i suppose you'll believe i don't know who should have if it isn't me brother maxfield said the preacher earnestly are you sure that you have a clear leading in this matter have you prayed for one maxfield shifted in his chair and made no answer oh consider what you do in trusting that tender soul among worldlings i do not say that these are wicked people in a carnal sense but are they such as can edify or strengthen a young girl like rhoda who is still in a seeking state and has not yet that blessed assurance which we all supplicate for her i have laid the matter before the lord said maxfield almost sullenly powell was silent for a moment standing with his hands forcibly clasped together as though to control them from vehement action and when next he spoke his voice had a tone in it which told of strong effort of will to keep it in subdued monotony then have you thought of it said he there is the young man algernon what of algernon cried maxfield turning sharply to face the preacher he is fair to look upon and specious and has those graces and talents which the world accounts lovely may there not be a snare here for rhoda she who is so alive to all the beauty and graciousness in god's world and in god's creatures may it not be very perilous for her to be thrown unguardedly into the society of this youth maxfield looked into the fire instead of at powell as he said what has been putting this into your head i have had a call to say it to you for some time past before i went away this summer it was on my mind i sinned in resisting the call for for reasons which matter to no one but myself i sinned in putting any human reason above my master's service it may be as you would have done better to resist speaking now said maxfield slowly it may be as it was rather a temptation than a leading from heaven made you speak at all powell started back as if he had been struck the blood rushed into his face and then suddenly receding left him paler than before but he answered after a moment in a low sweet voice and without a trace of anger you cannot mistrust me more than i mistrusted myself but i have wrestled and prayed and i am assured that i have spoken this thing with a single heart well 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 it may be as you say said maxfield a shade less harshly than he had spoken before but you have neither wife nor daughter nor sister and you cannot understand these matters as well as i do who are more than double your years and have had the guidance of this young maid from a baby upward nay answered powell humbly it is not my own wisdom i am uttering god forbid that i should set up my carnal judgment against a man of your years that's very well said very rightly said exclaimed maxfield nodding twice or thrice 
ay but i must speak when my conscience bids me i dare not resist that admonition for any human respect why to be sure but do you think yours is the only conscience to be listened to i tell you i follow mine young man you can ask any of our brethren here in whitford who have known me for the last thirty or forty years whether i have gone far astray powell sighed wearily i have released my soul he said and just hearken pursued old maxfield in a lowered voice don't say a word of this to rhoda nay don't interrupt me i've listened to your say now let me have mine because you might be putting something into her thoughts that wouldn't have come there of itself and keep a discreet tongue before betty and james least said soonest mended and i'll tell you something more if observe i say if i saw that rhoda's heart was strongly set upon anything anything that wasn't wrong in itself i should be very loath to thwart her david powell turned a startled attentive face on the old man who proceeded with a sort of dogged monotony of voice and manner christian charity teaches us there's good folks in all the communions of believers and there's different ranks and different orders of the world some has one thing and some has another some has fine family and great connections among the rulers of the land others has the goods of this world earned by honesty and diligence and frugality and these three bring a blessing some is fitted to be gentlefolks by nature let em be born where they will others like my sister-in-law betty is born to serve we are all the lord's creatures and we are all in his hand but as clay in the hand of the potter but there's different kinds of clay you know this kind is good for making coarse delf and that kind is fit for fine porcelain we'll just keep these words as have passed between you and me to ourselves if you please and now i think we may drop the subject may the lord give you his counsel said powell in a broken voice amen i've had my share of wisdom and have walked pretty straight for the last half-century thanks be to him observed old max dryly if it were his good pleasure how gladly would i cease for evermore from speaking to you on this theme but it matters nothing what i desire or shrink from i must deliver my master's message when it is borne in upon me to do so and with a solemnly uttered blessing on the household the preacher departed the master of the house sat thinking alone by his fireside he began by thinking that he had a little over-encouraged david powell maxfield considered praise from himself to be very encouraging and calculated to uplift the heart when powell had first come among the whitford methodists old max had taken him by the hand and had declared him to be the most awakening preacher they had had for many years he was never tired of vaunting powell's zeal and diligence and eloquence backsliders were brought again to the right way sinners were awakened believers were refreshed under his ministry the fame of powell's preaching drew many unwanted auditors to the little chapel and of those who came at first merely from curiosity many were moved by his words to join the wesleyan connection on all this jonathan maxfield looked with great satisfaction the young man had been truly a burning and a shining light but now might it not be that the preacher's heart had become puffed up with spiritual pride was he not unduly exalting himself when he assumed a tone of censorship towards a pillar of the community such as jonathan maxfield the old man had been for many years accustomed to much deference alike from preacher and congregation the exhortations and admonitions which were doubtless needful for his neighbours were entirely out of place when addressed to himself his piety and probity were established on a rock and the lord had moreover seen fit to gift him with so large a share of the wisdom of the serpent as had enabled him to hold his own and to thrive in the midst of worldlings a dull fire of indignation against david powell began to smoulder in the old man's heart as he pondered these things other thoughts too more or less disquieting passed through his brain he thought of rhoda's mother of that second wife 
whom he a man past middle life had married for her fair young face and gentle ways much to betty grimshaw's disgust and the surprise of most people he looked back on the long dusty dreary road of his life and in the whole landscape the only spot on which the sun seemed to shine was that brief year of his second marriage not that he had been or that he now was an unhappy man his life had satisfactions in it of a sober sombre kind he did not grow soft or sentimental in reviewing the past he was accustomed to the chill grey atmosphere in which he lived but he had felt warm sunlight once and remembered it and he had a notion inarticulate indeed and vague that rhoda needed more light and warmth in her life than was necessary for his own existence or for james or betty grimshaw's or in fact for most people's there was no amount of hardness he could not be guilty of to most people and indeed he was hard enough to himself but for rhoda there was a soft place in his heart nevertheless there were many hopes fears speculations and reflections connected with rhoda just now which had anything but a softening effect on mr maxfield's demeanour insomuch that betty and james coming in presently to supper found the head of the family in so crabbed a temper that they were glad to hurry through the meal in silence and slink off to bed End of volume one, chapter three.